Paperman meets up to... Coming up next, Alan Shartok, Ira Fussfeld, Judy Patrick, and me, Rex Smith, with a conversation about latest trends in the media. We'll talk about why those CNN executives were fired. But most importantly, we'll talk about the change to the world as a result of the invasion and what the responsibilities are for the media in this new environment. Join us for the Media Project. All of that and more coming up next. Such interesting people. They wallow in corruption. Papermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. For I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They wallow in corruption, crime, and gore. The Media Project is a half hour of commentary and analysis on the media issues of recent days. Actually, it's a conversation among some veteran journalists about what we've been seeing. I'm Rex Smith, and I am here with Judy Patrick and Ira Fussfeld and Dr. Alan Shartok. We are the Media Projectors today. You know, the world has changed since the last time we sat in this studio together, and that is there's a war underway in Europe. And I wonder about the media's responsibility and how we're going to go about dealing with this. Because if you look at what has been covered in media outlets in recent months, it has not been, although there has been a lot of coverage of the buildup to this, it certainly is different from what we're likely to see. And so I wonder about the responsibility to give people information to sort of direct their attention to something that is important, even if it is not at the forefront of their mind the way, say, crime in cities or schools and parental responsibility might be. Dr. Shartok, since you're, after all, the senior person in the room, uh, you've watched this kind of thing happen and unfold. Certainly the senior political scientist in the room. (laughs) However, I do have to say that the media, in whatever that means, is going to have to make some decisions as they have in other wars. Are they people who are supposed to be defensive about this country and never say anything bad? Or is intelligent discussion allowable? We do know, Rex, on all, that the people who are going to put this stuff out will have a number of options. One of them will be whether they can be in Ukraine itself and if they're allowed to be, and whether Russian censors, assuming that the Russians take it all, will have their way with the Western press. Those are all going to be big questions. Hmm. 
Well, it's the early days as we sit here taping this program, so it's hard to see where it's going to go. But the lead up to the war, to the Ukrainian, the invasion of Ukraine, I thought was done very well and responsibly by most media outlets. I believe that the public, if they were paying attention, got accurate information, enough so so that it should not have come as a surprise. And I certainly would urge those who are covering it to continue on that track. The thing that I'm wondering about is... There's so much media, and I don't just mean news media, but there are so many places for the public to be distracted, whether it's streaming or broadcast or sports channels or cooking channels. I wonder how many people are going to really have this severity of what's going on in their minds. I'm just wondering whether people are not going to be fully aware of how dangerous a time this is through no fault of anybody. Everybody's got an outlet and they've got to make money to drug viewers and listeners and readers. But the fact is there are just a lot of them and they're all, they're splitting the public up. Mm -hmm. Judy, what do you think? I mean, here you and I edited and Ira edited and then published local newspapers where our focus tends to be on what's happening uh, close to home. Yet when there's something huge like this that ultimately affects our security, what do you do? Yeah, you've got to put it out front and center. It's been a really tough few years, last five or six years, primarily thanks to Donald Trump, that the media has been under attack and our credibility has been challenged. And covering this war is a way for us to redeem ourselves. People need good, solid information. They need as much information, reliable information as they can get. They need transparency. When we are showing a clip of a Russian tank rolling in that has been supplied by the Russian government, we need to do a better job labeling it as supplied by the Russian government. We need to tell people what we know and tell people what we don't know. We need to put things in context. We need to analyze. This is where we can step up and we can play an important role in making sure the people of this country and around the world know what's going on and call lies out when we see them, call the truth out when we see it, and use all the resources available to us. I think it's a way for us to redeem ourselves and reestablish our trust with our readers, our I listeners. But I, I, I have a question about that. And I, in any number of stories over the years, this has been a debate that I've had with myself or with my colleagues. And that is, should the war be on the front page of a newspaper like the Daily Freeman or the Daily Gazette or even the Times Union, which is a larger paper than ours, the local stories are the ones that we have the expertise in, and that's what people are buying our publications, I believe, to read the local news. And thus, do we look stupid or silly if we don't have anything about the war on the front page? Well, you know, the three of you are experts in local affairs, and you are experts in who your audience is. Is your audience a group of people who buy the New York Times every day and have alternatives to go to? Or does your audience want purely local stuff? At a time like this, it seems clear to me that this is really dangerous. You know, I think we need to recognize also that people get access to information electronically, primarily. Right. And so the front page and even buying the New York Times is sort of a concept of the past because we're all served up information on our handheld devices and our laptops and so on constantly. The news finds us. So I think that you need as a local entity to put that stuff, to put the world stuff front and center. And it seems to me we have responsibility 
to almost force feed our audiences the important information that is, yes, Alan, outside our usual sphere of influence. And the second thing is, I think this makes also media criticism especially important because we're in a situation now in this country where we almost have to care as much about, as one of the MSNBC commentators put it, don't care as much about what Tucker Carlson thinks about Vladimir Putin as we have to think about what Putin does because the opposition party in Congress, half the United States now listens to these people and Tucker Carlson, that despicable character, is basically an apologist for Putin at this point. Here's Tucker Carlson. Why do Democrats want you to hate Putin? Has Putin shipped every middle-class job in your town to Russia? Did he manufacture a worldwide pandemic that wrecked your businesses? Is he teaching your kids to embrace racial discrimination? Is he making fentanyl? Does he eat dogs? That's Tucker Carlson. And that, I think, is also part of what we need to do is to call out these bad players in our midst who are distracting us from what is truly important, and that is a threat to world security. Tucker Carlson or somebody who agreed with Tucker Carlson was a syndicated columnist. Would you run that in a, on your op-ed page? Would I? No. Mm-mm. You wouldn't. But don't we have a responsibility to have all of the views out there, including one that I would agree with you is despicable? Not every view. No, I think that an op-ed page is an opportunity for you to help shape opinion, and, and I would try to squelch that kind of stuff, frankly. I mean, you, you put into your news columns. You have a responsibility to fill your news columns with everything. But your opinion pages, I think you can make some judgments there and say, this guy is not for But us. this guy is a Trumper, if you think about it. And Trump, incredibly, has been dismissed from much media as being too far out. And so we're not going to run him. We're not going to talk about him. So there's a whole group of people, followers of Trump, who do not get this crazy talk from Trump or from his lieutenants, including Carlson, who I believe is such a person. So we have come to a point in this country where we are saying we're not going to run this ex-president or the people who speak for him. Is that dangerous? Well, we saw the debut of his new social media network. Yes. By him, I mean Donald Trump. His Truth Social stumbled in recent days when it tried to debut and the app wouldn't load and people couldn't sign up. And people are really questioning you know, whether or not it has the infrastructure to rival Twitter, which it doesn't. I should note that Tucker Carlson was trend- has been trending in recent days on Twitter with the hashtag Tuckio Rose. Excellent. A play of the old Tokyo And so true. Uh But here's the thing. Uh, There was a new poll out shortly before the invasion from Gallup and the Knight Foundation that found that Democrats have been tuning out national news during the Biden era, that there's been a huge decline, especially among younger Democrats. The first time since this study began a few years ago that Democrats have less interest in national news than Republicans. independence. And I guess, what is that? Is that because people like to read what makes them mad? And so they followed national news when Trump was in and now they don't? Well, a lot of places like WAMC, for example, knew we had a huge audience while Trump was here. People love to hate him. Our audience loved to hate him. They loved to listen when there was criticism of the guy. And I suspect there are Democrats who fall into that category. They just don't want to listen to the news if they can't be alarmed about Trump. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And there's probably some relief that they don't have to pay attention to the news so much. I think it, during the Trump administration, people were on tenderhooks all the time. You know, so many bad things happened, and it just seemed like it never ended, so you had to stay on top of it. I think there's some relief there that they don't have to do that anymore. Well, what does it say about the country and the future of the country if people are not turning on the news or reading about the news? Mm-hmm. They want them to just go ignorant. That's why I go back to my point earlier about the war. I mean, we may be on the brink of World War III, and people may be watching the Kardashians. They won't be informed. And then all of a sudden, when they when their son or daughter is drafted or volunteers to go to war, they're going to wonder what happened. That is exactly right. And that's why I think this conversation is important, because it is upon the shoulders of people who run news organizations to decide how can we give people news of consequence, even if it's not what they want? How do we force feed people? Uh, How do you give nutrition to someone on a hunger strike? And that's kind of what I think the news media need to be doing at this point. I would say, whoa. And the reason for that, Rex, is... Is that wow or whoa? (laughs) No, it's definitely as if you were riding on a horse. Yeah, you were just tied to the horse. saying, whoa. Whoa. You know, I I think that you got to be careful here because we are making different assumptions. With Trump, we are saying we're not going to play him. We're not going to listen to him. And yet, and I know that you don't like this term when I use it, but you people, well, <laughs> <laughs> oh, that term. Yeah. But but you people know you do a Trump story and people are going to read it, especially if it has a negative slant. And that's got to be you know somewhat of a news aphrodisiac. Yeah, but you're also, we're also going to get flooded with calls saying, "Why are you wasting your space on this guy? He's no longer the president." Now, well, I, I disagree with that, but I wouldn't say everybody wants to read it. Well, when you say flooded, you know that's interesting. Uh, you know, <laughs> if I, only. When, huh? when I worked as an intern in Congress, I remember standing next to two congressmen who were one was saying to the other, "I'm being flooded with mail on this thing." The other guy said, well, how flood is it? Well, I got five or six, (laughs) and that's more than I usually get. There used to be a theory that if you only got 10 letters, that you could multiply out and extrapolate that that was many, many, many more than 10. Right. I used a a multiplier of 10 to gauge it. You know, maybe that Trump is a lot like the Kardashians, that he's a celebrity kind of Absolutely. For people, and that is the challenge. But also, for, he has a big rear end, so that. And that's how. He got, <laughs> and by the way, that's how he, what Judy just said is how he got to be president of the United it, States. It, it, it is. And so, but maybe one of the challenges for us in the media is to make our news palatable. Maybe we need to cover the war via TikTok. I don't want to go that far, but people seem to think it's difficult to read or to listen to a broadcast for more than a minute or so. So we have to work this both ends. We have to encourage people people in schools to develop good reading and listening habits. And we also, at our end, need to make our news more interesting, more easy to digest. Yeah, I think that's true. That is actually an ethical charge for journalists. If your news is not accessible, if it's not something that is available to people and something you can easily consume, you're not doing anybody any favors. But if your audience isn't educated, you know, and you give them material which they can't understand and is above their intellectual grade, what does that do? Well, the tried and true method, whether it's a war or whether it's a natural disaster or whether it's a good news story, but a national story, is can it be localized? 
And there are any number of opportunities with something like a war to localize the story with comments from local mm. politicians, from local business people, from people who are involved serving. You know, it's easier yeah. said than done, particularly because we have fewer resources to write these stories. But if you want to put the current Ukraine story on the front page and you're a local newspaper, it seems to me the way to do it is localize the story. Yeah. Because if all you're going to have is, is the AP story that's available any number of other places, you're wasting your space. And the readers, I think, are going to be disappointed because they want to see local stories on the front page. So the local impact of this conflict is going to be higher fuel prices, for yes, example. It's right. going to be disruptions or it could well be cyber attacks by Russia that are disabling our utilities and so on. If I were to put on a hat of a Biden administration propagandist, I guess that's not the term we use in this country, but the public uh, information officer. Public information <laughs> <laughs> yes, well, uh, if I were to do that for the president, I would try to say, give us almost a war effort the way FDR did. You know, support the people of Ukraine by, and then fill in the blank so that people understand that the economic hardship that is confronting them, so that the sacrifices that we're going to face are, in fact, a result of what's going on in trying to defend Europe, trying to defend, frankly, defend freedom and the Western way of life that we have against this onslaught, this barbarism. And it takes us back, you know, we all in this room grew up during the Cold War. This takes us back to a time when it was clear that there was sort of an enemy out there. We've gotten away from that over the last 30 years. But I think this is actually a throwback, and it will be really interesting to see how this plays out. So, so just to get it right, uh, Rex, uh, you believe that, because there are those who do not. Yes. We speak with them on the radio and the rest of it. I know. Do you, do you believe he is, Putin is the enemy? Yes, I do. I believe that we are standing, in this instance, the United States is standing for democracy and for freedom. And I understand that we are reluctant to ascribe great motives to our government these days because we've been disappointed so many times since the Vietnam War. But I think that we are on the right side of history on this and that we need to be stalwart. And in fact, that calls for some level of, I hesitate to use the word, patriotism on the part of the American media. Incredibly, I agree with you. Are you going to say something? No, I, I was going to, to go back to what we were talking about before. Newsrooms, as we know, can be cynical and the home of sick jokes. And as it relates to localizing stories, the, the standard line was, there is a plane crash halfway across the world, 500 people killed, and the editor would say, anybody local? Sure. Exactly. And if not, exactly. the story runs inside. That's the newsroom culture. You know, when it comes to determining whether or not Putin is evil or the enemy, one of the challenges people have and the due diligence you have to do is listen to them, read where they're coming from, listen to the people in their country, and figure out whether or not there's any truth to whatever they're mm. positioning. And then watch the, I mean, everyone has a responsibility to do that, to at least give it a try, see if there's any rationale to what he's doing. And over time, the leopard shows his spots. You know, Cousins is important here. Cousins. Cousins. Huh. Now, don't you get it? In other words, newsrooms now are going to be looking for anybody who has a cousin right. who's studying in Ukraine. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, you know, there are substantial Ukrainian immigrants in this area, are yeah, in, in the capital region And of you New have York all State. the educational institutions that have experts on staff that are more than willing to talk to get their names. And some of them are idiots. And also, there are, there are plenty of ways to localize this from the Russian perspective. Absolutely. Oh, yeah, sure. 
But when we find the cousins, when we find those people, you can be sure that they will show up on the 6 o'clock news and others because that's who they're going to be searching for, people who will bring relevance to all of this. But I don't think it's hyperbole to say that this is a very dangerous time and and it's got the potential to go way out of control. Well, here, let me just say one thing. I've said it before. Oh, he's only going to say one thing. Uh All right. You are are so correct. Ready, set, go. Go. This show ought to be an hour and Judy ought to be on it every week. <laughs> That's right. Well, watch. He's going to forget the one thing he was going to say. Do <laughs> you think so? You're right. <laughs> oh, well. So, if you wish to share your point of view, the Media Project, media at wamc.org is our email address. Rex Smith, Judy Patrick, Ira Fussfeld, and Alan Shartok here. We've been debating something very important, and now we move to something not perhaps so, except that there may be significant consequences. CNN is now in search of a new leader. We will talk for a second here about the ouster of the last one. But the new leader who may well emerge, the guy who is the chair of the board of Discovery Media, which is taking over CNN. You know, CNN was started by Ted Turner, owned by AT&T. It's now part of an $85 billion acquisition by Discovery. And the guy who runs Discovery is named John Malone. Malone is a longtime cable news executive from Long Island. He actually is a Trump donor. He's a guy who has been a great supporter of the right, raising the question of is CNN going to become Fox, except that. John Malone said, quote, I would like to see CNN evolve back to the kind of journalism that it started with and actually have journalists, which would be unique and refreshing, he said. You know what that means. What does that mean? Well, it means he's putting out the Trump line that CNN is a bunch of lefties. And if he had his way, it would go back to real news. And we always know what real news means, something that it's not doing now. Initially, I thought he was talking about was the CNN you're seeing today and tomorrow and then in the coming weeks as Mm. you see live coverage of Mm. of this ongoing war or live coverage of a disaster, a natural disaster, which CNN excels at and to get away from the commentary. But then at one point, Malone in his comments says, just like Fox is doing now. Fox is not doing that now. They're not doing unbiased coverage. He wants it to be like Fox. He does not want a return to hard news only. He wants Fox. Mm. Well, this entire CNN story has so many threads to it. I think it's been an undercovered story outside of CNN itself and the New York Times, starting with what happened to Chris Cuomo. And I I don't want to go into all of it. We don't have enough time. But you have the Chris Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo element of this. You have Jeff Zucker and his associate slash girlfriend part of this. You have the Malone comments that you two just alluded. And the future of CNN is really at stake right now. And there are all sorts of implications for CNN. CNN, but also for the media in general. This is a big topic in terms of, again, opinion versus news. Uh, How much is it too much? And ratings. And I'll stop Mm. at this. CNN, I believe, has gone too far with opinion. That's certainly not as much as MSNBC and Fox, but it has gone that way. But part of the reason I think they were motivated to do that was because their ratings are way down. So I would love for CNN this afternoon to be the CNN that was when it first started and continue that way. But the question is, outside of a natural disaster or a war where people are inclined to go to CNN, can they hold an audience without going 
with more opinion. Well, By the, the way, you just, said, you, just, you just said the right thing when yeah. you said MSNBC. Yeah. Because they're going to be the big winners when this. You say, okay, CNN goes over to the right. Uh, what does that leave? People like maybe me and maybe you. Yeah, but, you know, I don't think that, le- boy, that's, this is a generalization. As you said, I'm going to get letters. I don't think the left is as tied down to watching an MSNBC as the far right is to watching a Fox News. True. I mean, that's actually statistically valid, and that's why Fox is so important, because Fox is essentially the glue that holds together the Republican base. And even if Donald Trump himself isn't the party standard bearer, Fox News will anoint and figure out who is. But it will help MSNBC. It'll help NBC because, you know, I know I go back and forth all the time between the two channels. I think the, the war may actually be a good thing for CNN because people may be tuning in to real reporting that the other and cable that, channels And they don't do have. a terrific job of mm-hmm. that. I just I think know. they've messed themselves up by giving mm-hmm. Anderson Cooper and Chris Cuomo when he was on their air and Don Lemon, they've turned that nighttime over to very much opinionated broadcasting. Now, interesting stories are emerging about this ouster of CNN President Jeff Zucker and his executive vice president, Allison Gallist, which initially was was attributed to the fact that they had an unannounced affair going on, that that violated their standards. But now, reporting by CNN and by the New York Times and others now, makes it clear that what seems to have been at play was a little bit more. Notably, the CNN ratings are way down, and so there was a hope to make a change there. And number two, CNN executives, both Gallist, for example, was apparently consulting with Andrew Cuomo about what questions he wanted to be asked when he was to appear on the air there. And there are people in broadcast media who say, oh, yeah, that happens all the time. Is that a good thing? Well, I do agree it happens all the time. But not at this station. I can tell you I do a commentary with David Gustina every morning, and he goes out of his way to embarrass me one way or the other. (laughs) (laughs) And and when you're interviewing members of Congress on the congressional corner, you don't— be tough. Yeah, you don't give them the questions. When you you interview a politician, for example, you say, we're going to book you for a half hour. We may be talking about taxes. Or the war, you you just say we're going to book you for a half hour. We do not do it. Well, I know the TV networks typically do a pre-interview where the subject is basically given the parameters, which does not exclude the broadcaster from asking something else. But they basically say, "Here's what we're probably going to be talking about." Okay, I'll make a little news. So, you know, Andrew Cuomo, who I talked to a a lot before he decided he didn't want to talk to me (laughs) because I was asking him questions he didn't want to get asked about Mm -hmm. his mother and Thanksgiving and all that kind of stuff, which made big news. But they would call me all the time. Asking would, about what they would say. They would say, uh, it would be good if you could talk right. about yeah. I never listened to that crap ever. Right. right. I mean, I just said, thank you very much, hung up the phone and did what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. So they do that. It is different. I mean, television, You on the one hand, you understand that the constraints on television are really different from the other media. You know, if you're the moderator of Meet the Press, you have to hit that little pad, you know, 15 seconds that you've got to hit in there somewhere, and they can roll the credits faster. Or, I mean, you have the same pressures so, here in radio. But. So I have a question for you. Why did they fire Lawrence Spivak? Uh, who, 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 <laughs> what? You and I are the only two people yeah, who know who that is. This is really great, because Judy is totally <laughs> I have no idea. What about the chimpanzee about. on the Today <laughs> Show? Why did he lose? Spivak was the early guy on Meet oh, the Press. Yes. 
and then all of a sudden he wasn't the lead. He was still on it for a while. Well, he got old and they and retired, but he was he was your proto. <laughs> he, he was your proto. Uh, listen, I'm old and you're old, and we've both retired. Oh wait, you haven't. Yeah. <laughs> wait, so, oh wait, you know wait, wait, that. Can I get back to CNN here for a minute? Yes. Because I wanted to make the point that it's okay for a producer to call a politician ahead of time, say, "Can you do an on-air interview with us about the flood?" Sure. But in this case, what we had was a senior executive at CNN reaching out to the people who were asking the questions and say. Cuomo wants to be asked about this, this, and this. And that's a real blow to their yes. credibility. They have some rebuilding to do. But going back to Zucker and Gallist, it may have been easier to get rid of them because the ratings were so low. The fact of the matter is Zucker violated a company policy that they were upholding with everybody else who worked there. And you can't allow that to happen. If, if it was a clear violation which was not to reveal to his superiors the affair he was having with a colleague. And in fact, there were any number of opportunities for him to do it. He deserved to get fired. The ethical violation, though, I think Judy's point about an executive, in this case, Allison Gallist, who had been Andrew Cuomo's Mm -hmm. communications director, remember, years ago, now being on the phone with him and Cuomo's staff giving her the questions that the anchor was supposed to ask him that's really outrageous, isn't it? And so I think that would be cause enough to be forced to resign. This executive, by the way, Gallist, was in charge of the public-facing uh-uh. notion of CNN. And, and in fact, you know? that is why she was fired. She did not get fired over the affair. Zucker got right. fired over the affair. So anyway, supposedly, we don't know. And this part of the lack of transparency is part of the issue here. But the real issue is that we have journalistic standards there that are different from one medium to another. <laughs> This is uh, very interesting. Yeah, I wonder how much Zucker got paid on the way out. Well, that's, they're uh, still fighting they're about fighting. that. Yeah, we yeah. will see about that. Anyway, we've run out of time. <laughs> Amazingly enough, we don't have time for Maybe next week we show. can talk about why we put pictures of certain people like Gullist in the paper and why some people get pictures in the paper and why they don't, if you're Wait, following did me. Did you not put Alan's picture in the paper? <laughs> when you I were always there? did. When <laughs> no, 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 no. Okay. Never mind. More to come. That is the Media Project. Dr. Alan Shartok, Ira Fussfeld, Judy Patrick, and I'm Rex Smith with gratitude to our producer, David Gustina, and to you folks for joining us this week on The Media Project. Let's give three cheers of freedom of the press.